Um, if you've been with us for a little while, we've been in the book of Psalms. Uh, so have your Bible, phone, iPad, I don't know, laptop, whatever you have, turn it open to Psalms. We'll be in Psalm 22. And as you've been going through the book of Psalms, you know, what's really amazing is that um, if you've noticed, Psalms convey some of the most intimate and expressive human emotions and experiences. I mean, considering the tragic news that seems to always fill our feeds and the news um, and the constant bombardment of just what's going on and what's wrong with the world, I feel like Psalms offers a way for us to actually process um, and um, really pray through much of what's going on in our world and even in our own lives. And so we'll be in Psalm 22, and and I think this Psalm even will speak even more um, just specifically to all the things that we're going through. So what I want to do is I want to read the psalm. It's a bit longer of a psalm, um, so please um, join me in as I read this to you all, and then I'll pray and then jump right in, okay? Psalm 22. To the choir master, according to the doe of the dawn, a psalm of David. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer, and by night, but I find no rest. Yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel, and you, our fathers, trusted. They trusted, and you delivered them. To you, they cried and were rescued, and you, they trusted and were not put to shame. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who seek me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. Yet you are he who took me from the womb. You made me trust you at my mother's breast. On you was I cast from my birth, and from the mother's womb you have been my God. Be not far from me, for trouble is near, and there is none to help me. Many bulls encompassed me. Strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me like a ravening and roaring lion. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like potsherd, and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. For dogs encompassed me. A company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hand and feet. I can count on my bones. They stare and glout at me. They divide my garment among them, for, and for my clothing they cast lots. But you, O Lord, do not be far off. O you, my help, come quickly to my aid. Deliver my soul from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the mouth of the lion. You have rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. Verse 22. I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you offspring of Jacob, glorify him. And stand in all of him, all you offspring of Israel. For he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted, and he has not hidden his face from him, but has heard when he cried to him. From you comes my praise in the great congregation. My vows I will perform before those who fear him. The afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him shall praise the Lord. May your hearts live forever. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations shall worship before you. For kingship belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. 
All the prosperous of the earth eat and worship. Before him shall bow, shall bow all who go down to the dust, even the one who could not keep himself alive. Posterity shall serve him. It shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn that he has done it. Let me pray. Father, we are grateful for your word this morning. Um, it's a loaded, um, powerful, beautiful poem that your servant David wrote, and we have the privilege now to look more deeply into it as it also reveals deeply more of our hearts. And so, Father, be with us this morning. May it be your words, not my words, that are said. Um, I pray, too, for our hearts, God, that what's ever on our minds, our hearts, worries, concerns, fears, taskless to do, that you would just kind of put them to the side and allow your word to be true and good to us this morning. Uh, may it produce good fruit, God, because we want to be not just hearers of your word, but doers of your word as you call us to live for you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You know, a few weeks ago, I was listening to a podcast um, hosted by a man named Russell Moore. And it's a, it's a podcast that engages in kind of faith and culture. And in this episode, he invites a professor. Um, the professor's name is Stephen Prothero. And the topic was on cremation, right? Uh, you guys know what cremation is, is when there's, uh, you know, the dead and you uh, burn them and kind of have them into ashes. Now, for me, as I'm listening to this, I'm like, uh, I don't want to listen to this. This sounds really boring. And so I almost turned it off, but because I was driving, I just kind of let the podcast play as I was driving. And I eventually found myself really, really interested because they began with this statistic that in the year 2000, about 27% of Americans who died were cremated. But then in 2020, so 20 years, you know, this is pre-pandemic too, that number rose to 56% of people who died were cremated. And then they said that the Cremation Association of North America and the National Funeral Directors Association, I didn't know those existed, but they do, um, that predicted that by 2040, the number of cremations will jump to about 80%. Now, like me, you're probably wondering, like, what's the big deal? You know, um, cremation is, is cheaper. Um, we don't have enough land to bury uh, all, all the dead. True, I, I get that. But listen to what Thomas Lynch, uh, is. he's a Michigan poet and a funeral director. He says this, and I have it on the screen behind me. He says, <clears throat> cremation is the single greatest change in our funeral practices in our generation. People want the body disappeared because this is the first generation of our species that tries to deal with death without dealing with the dead. And in the podcast, which I highly recommend you to listen to, Russell and Stephen, they were not downplaying the practicality of cremation, but they were asking what happens to us as a society that downplays seeing the dead and experiencing the pain and loss that it brings to our lives. What happens when we only take one or two days off to grieve the loss of a loved one, when in most cultures and generations throughout history have taken anywhere from 14 days to a whole month to mourn and grieve? What happens when churches are no longer, and this is really interesting, churches are no longer next to graveyards, but, and instead, we rather not like to be near things that remind us of death. And though they suggest a lot of different things that could be wrong or that could be happening within their society, one thing they mention, and I would actually strongly agree, 
is that for us as a people, as a society, as a culture, we do not know how to grieve. And for us as Christians, we do not know how to lament. Now, what is lament? Um, if you've been, you know, you may, might have heard around this, about this if you've been in the church for a little while. Lament is not just crying or grieving even. It's not just venting or being sad. Lament is praying to God in your pain or on the behalf of the pain of others. And I actually love this definition that um, I found this week um, by a pastor named Mark um, Rokop. I'm not sure how to say his last name, but he writes this. He says, lament is a divinely given invitation to pour out our fears, frustrations, and sorrows for the purpose of helping us to renew our confidence in God. Because when you look at scripture, if you look at all of scripture, lament, it's seen in one-third over, it's, it's seen in over one-third of the Psalms. Lament is seen quite often in the people of Israel. Lament is seen in the prophets, in the prophetic books. It's seen even in Paul's letters, and it's even seen from Jesus' mouth and words himself. Lament is everywhere in scripture, yet it is not commonly practiced amongst the church today. I would say probably more so the Western church or the American church today. So for today, what I wanna do is as we look in Psalm 22, oh, sorry, um, one of the most beautiful, um, Psalm 22 is one of the most beautiful, and if you've noticed here, raw psalms of the Psalter, and it's a psalm of lament. And for the rest of our time, I wanna walk through three ways it shows us how we can lament. Let's go right in. Psalm 22, the first way. The first way is that lament offers our unfiltered anguish before God, our unfiltered anguish. Now, let me just read verse one and two again, well-known words. It says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer, and by night I find no rest. Notice from the onset from this psalm that David, who's the writer of this, he doesn't use fluffy language or filtered emotions here when he addresses God. Notice instead, David addresses God in these pain-ridden questions. And if you boil them down to just one question, David is crying out, God, why have you abandoned me? And whether by day or night, no matter what, I find no rest because you have abandoned me. You know, I don't want to move too quickly from these two verses because it really sets the stage because this is where David is offering his deepest sorrow and pain. From the psalm, we don't exactly know what's going on with David. We don't know if he's going through war or gone through betrayal or been sick or his life is in danger. But what we see here is that for David, lamenting is not lamenting the different circumstances he is going through. He is lamenting because he feels that God has abandoned him. Now, I want to pause here and even just ask all of us, have you ever felt abandoned by God. Perhaps God hasn't provided the healing or the relationships or the opportunities that you have been longing for. Or perhaps God hasn't met you in difficult circumstances that you faced over this past season. 
Or perhaps God hasn't given you the same joy and purpose or excitement you had previously in your season of faith or of your, of your journey of faith. Let me tell you, church, David, or if David, the one that scripture says was a man after God's own heart, felt abandoned by God, you and I have definitely felt abandoned by God. And I don't know who needs to hear this today or when you need to hear this, maybe tomorrow, next month, next year, but it is perfectly okay to feel this. I feel like many times in the church or maybe even the Western or American church, we want to talk a lot about the celebratory things, the happy things, the good things that God does, and we should for sure. But scripture is filled with complaints. It's filled with sorrows and pains and laments. And I'll address this later on, but this same feeling of abandonment, Jesus felt too. And then as we get to the other parts of the psalm, let me just kind of quickly go through some of the other parts. We see David continue to express his sorrow and feelings of abandonment before God. If you look in verse six, it says, David says, I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. There isn't a single living creature lower than a worm, okay? It's weak, it's helpless, and naturally despised and trampled upon. Jumping to verses 12 to 18, we see a bunch of these different animal metaphors that David uses to express these external threats that are most likely threatening his life. The bulls of Bashan in verse 12 that's surrounding David, they were a symbol of human prosperity and strength, most likely other leaders or maybe even war generals who are surrounding him and they are opposed to God's ways and God's wills. The dogs, if you jump to verse 16, they don't point to strength, but they actually point to the mockery in the, in the ways that they're celebrating David's misery. If you ever watched the movie Lion King, it's like the bulls are the wildebeest stampede while the dogs are those annoying hyenas all circling around David, constantly threatening him and mocking him. So because of this external hardship and the feeling of God abandoning him, David dives even further into his sorrows in verse 14 and 15. And I'm just gonna kind of pick some verses here. He says, I am poured out like water. My heart is like wax. My strength is dried up like potsherd, which is you know a broken piece of pottery, pretty much useless and dry. And at the end, he says, you lay me in the dust of death. David feels empty, lost, and honestly, he feels ready to die. For some of us, it might seem like David's a little bit overdramatic here, but what it challenges us to see is that David hides nothing from God. He pours out his emotions, his frustrations, his fears, his sorrows, everything before God. And if we've all felt abandoned by God, perhaps the next question is, do you express everything to God like David does here? If not, what's holding you back? Is it fear that God would get mad at you? Is it fear that expressing what you really think is like unchristian or unbiblical? Is it fear that these feelings of sorrow and pain and anger would just boil up and you don't wanna feel those things anymore? Let me tell you, church, listen to this. 
God can take your frustrations. God can take your sorrows. God can take your difficulties, even if they are directed to him. On top of that, if we believe that God is our father, God wants us to express these frustrations. He wants us to be honest with him. You know, some of you know that I have two young boys. Um, One is almost four, Matthias. The other one, um, Josiah, is two. And, um, you know, they're at the age where they're kind of close in age together, where they enjoy playing together and laughing together. And, you know, one of the best things as a parent is that when they're playing and laughing uh, kind of away from you and they leave you alone, it's like the angels are playing harps. It's just beautiful noise to your lips, you know, because they're playing, not because they're leaving you alone, right? They're playing together, right? Okay. Um, And it's just beautiful. And I love it, right? But um, sin is in the world, and so um, it's not always happening that way. Um, Sometimes all you hear is screaming, um, crying, and some sort of projectile being thrown, right? Um, And so as a a good parent, you have to kind of go over there. You're going to see what's wrong, what's going on. And there are many times when I go over and um, I kind of ask, like, either one is crying. It's never both. Like, one is crying. And I kind of ask them, like, what's wrong? Like, you know, tell dad. Um, But sometimes I know exactly what happened, and I know who is the perpetrator, who is the one at fault. And so I take them to to the site, either Matthias or Josiah, and I say, hey, like, you can't do that. And I, like, give them a timeout, or I try to explain to them, and I kind of discipline them because I know that they've done wrong. But then, quickly, it's interesting how their sorrow and their anger gets, like, shifted to me. And they just give me the silent treatment. They just like, anger is like on their face. They're like, just like this. And they're not talking. They're like mad. And I'm like, tell dad why you're upset. Tell dad. And they don't want to tell me. They're mad. They just, they, they, they're mad that they, I took their toy away or that they, they're getting a timeout. But more and more, I'm just, as they're dead, I'm like, tell me, why are you sad? Why are you angry? Please, just tell me. And it, it takes a while. It, sometimes it takes, you know, a time out, and then you have to kind of go back to them, and then they're able to kind of explain that to you. Um, but the reason why I say that, and I ask them that question, is because as their father, I want them to practice telling me why they are angry and sad. Because in one sense, as young developing children, they need to learn how to express their thoughts and feelings, right, in a healthy manner. That doesn't come automatically. And I mean, some of us adults even need that practice as well. But in another sense, I want them to share because I want them to know that I care about their frustrations, their anger, and their sorrows. Just as much as I care when they're happy or when they're laughing or when they're giggling and doing all sorts of fun things. As their father, I want to know everything that they are feeling. And our heavenly father is no different. God, like any good parent, can take our frustrations, our sorrows, and our difficulties because he cares about every single feeling and thing that you are experiencing right now in your life. He wants to engage with you in a personal relationship. He wants to know you, and that requires for us to give our unfiltered anguish to God. Now, what we see as we continue on in the psalm is that David, he doesn't just complain here. Now, we have to remember that he doesn't just dump all his problems on God and just kind of leave. But what we see in this psalm is this back and forth Tension, which leads me to the second way that we lament. 
Number two, lament is a tug of war in our hearts. Tug of war in our hearts. You know, I don't know if you guys all know tug of war, but it's kind of like this battle of back and forth, back and forth between two teams. Who's the strongest? Because if you take a step back in this psalm and look at the entirety of verse 1 to 22, what we see and we notice is this back and forth tension that David has in this prayer. Just quickly going, and I think there's an outline behind me. It says in verse 1 to 2, I just mentioned, there's this heartfelt lament that David feels abandoned before God. But then in verse 35, we get the exact opposite. We get David saying, yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. Verse 4, and you are fathers, they trust and you delivered them. So instead of anguish, what we see is this, we see David write words of trust and hope pointing to God's holiness. Then in verse six to eight, we just covered this as well. David expresses his, his lament again. I am a worm and not a man. But then in verse nine through 11, David writes this. He says, yet you are he who took me from the womb. You made me trust you at my mother's breast. On you was I cast from birth, and from my mother's womb, you have been my God. Again, here, David, he's writing this intimate language of how his trust was formed from the beginning of his life. And he equates God with, like his, like his mother. And so if you look at verse 3 and 5 and 9 and 11, you'll notice that David uses this parental language here, right? Uh, a trust of a father, the intimacy of a mother, all to express this inner turmoil of sorrow and frustration he is having with God, that he has this profound trust with God. And so David is just wrestling in his heart as he's going through this suffering. Then we go to verse 12 to 18, and we get the longest lament of David, where he goes and he talks about the circumstances and the external threats that are coming on his life. But then again, in verse 19 and 21, we get David's final cry for help. And he says, but you, O Lord, do not be far off. Of you, my help, come quickly to my aid. Deliver my soul, save me. And on he goes. So throughout these 21 or 22 verses, which is two-thirds of the psalm, David reveals his heart is going through this tug-of-war experience. On one hand, he rightfully expresses his frustrations, his anger before God. But then on the other hand, I imagine just David pausing his pen and then he just remembers who God is and what he's done and how much he trusts him and he wants to trust him. And this is an extremely important piece of what lament is, church. Lament is dwelling in and expressing the tension of the pain and sorrows while also holding on to our relationship with God who is holy, merciful, good and able to save. It's being able to hold these tensions both. But then, the question for us is do we really want to lament in that kind of way? Do we really want to have this tug of heart, this tug of war in our hearts? I bet most of us don't. And the reason why is because it's much easier to not live in this tension, it's much easier to pick one side or the other. For some of us, it's just easier to complain, to criticize, 
to express our sorrows and frustration without remembering who God is. We share all the problems of our lives and the sorrows of this world, maybe on others, maybe on our news feeds. And though we might provide some like human solutions, God is absent in our mourning. And if you then try to lament in this one-sided way, much of what like our world does, it won't lead you back to God. It will actually just lead to more bitterness, more resentment, and perhaps even eventually a rejection of who God is. But then for others, and I think this is actually more common in the church, we take the opposite approach. It's easier to ignore suffering or make less of our sufferings. That no matter what difficulty comes around you or whatever difficulty you see in the world, what we do is we just say, God is good. God is always good. God, is, God, will, God will figure it. We'll figure it out. We'll be fine. His promises won't fail us, which are true, but we use those almost as an excuse to not realize and sit in the suffering that we're dealing with or what the world is dealing with. This is probably more, again, an issue within the church where it's led to many of us suppressing our emotions, suppressing our feelings, which is not what we see in Scripture. Or it's even led to blaming ourselves when our faith isn't strong enough in suffering, all eventually leading to maybe seeing that lament is not necessary for us. Because for all of us, no matter what, I think we kind of tend towards leaning towards one side or the other. Or maybe even different seasons make us lean towards one side or the others. All of us do that because lament and living in a both-and tension is really, really hard. It's messy. It's difficult. And it's not natural for us because it requires deep vulnerability with the brokenness that we face in this world, but also a deep relationship and trust with God. And sometimes what God does is that in order to learn how to properly lament, he makes us go through experiences when we really need God. You know, for me, um, I on a personal story for me is that about 10 years ago, it was probably the, the darkest and the most difficult period of my life. It was a year after college. Um, a year after college is always a difficult time for many of us. But um, for me, it was compounded with many other things going on in my life. For me, um, a year after college, um, my family was still feeling the effects of my father passing away from pancreatic cancer. And as the eldest son, and in an Asian American, maybe a Korean household, you kind of have to, a lot of responsibilities as an eldest son, I took on much of the weight. I took on the financial and the logistical details of all the things to figure out and really kind of helped my mom out in a really difficult time. And it was a lot of anxiety and stress within our family. In addition to that, my work life was in shambles. I just had a job, and then all the things going on, I quit it. I quit the job because I really hated the job. It was in like a, at a company um, out in Chicagoland suburbs, and after I left it, I felt guilt, and I felt like I was kind of a failure for not even being able to survive a couple of years at work within this job. In addition to that, my relationships were really difficult. Um, they were distant. A lot of my close friends from college went to different cities. And then um, my dating relationship was really struggling as well. And then on top of that, to be kind of the cherry on top, all that stress and anxiety led to one of the most like, painful physical injuries I had regarding my back 
where I could not um, literally walk, sit, or sleep without pain for about three months. And I remember one day in that whole experience leading up to it, one day where I felt utterly defeated, where I identified with the same words of David, where I said, God, why have you abandoned me? Why have you not saved me? I am a worm. My heart feels like wax. My strength is all dried up. I feel hopeless. And as I lay on my bedroom floor, helpless and in pain, I had no words to say. So I decided to just, I don't know why I thought about this, but I just decided to play a song, a worship song on Spotify, and I just shuffled the list, a kind of random list. And the first song that played was this song um, called, many of you probably know, it's called Cornerstone by Hillsong. And it's actually based off of a hymn written 150 years ago. And let me just read some of these lyrics. It said, My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly trust in Jesus' name. Christ alone, cornerstone, weak made strong in the Savior's love. Through the storm, he is Lord, Lord of all. And at that moment, um, you know, I don't often cry, but tears kind of flowed through, kind of down my, down my cheeks. Because at the core of my heart, um, this wrestling was going on. I knew that God was still my cornerstone. I knew that God makes the weak strong. I knew that God loved me and that through any storm, he is Lord. But I also knew that my life really sucked at that moment. And I was just wrestling with this tension in my heart. And towards the end of that song, I don't know what was different about that day, but at the end of that song, I started singing along. And it gave me the hope and courage to boldly ask God again to help me in my distress. And I wasn't healed at that moment and life didn't get better right at that moment. But what it did is just it gave me hope to go on with another day of my life. And this leads me to the third way that we should lament, which is that lament always produces hope and praise. In verse 19 and 21, it's the turning point of the psalm. This is where David begins to make petition to God to help him in his distress. Because after David's tug of war in his heart, David moves from lament to petition, asking God to deliver him from his affliction. And then when you look in verse 22 to 31, you notice that there's not a single word of lament in those verses. But what you see is the entire tone and emotion of the psalm shifts from sorrow and tension to praise and worship. Why? I'm glad you asked. Look with me in verse 22 and 23. It says, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. Verse 25, from you comes my praise in the great congregation. One of the reasons David begins to praise and worship is because of the congregation of others who were being with him when he was lamenting, reminding David of who God was. God uses others in David's community to encourage him and be with him when he is lamenting. Not to worship the community, but to worship the God who brings the community together. And when David might, and, and when God might answer David's petition, 
The first people he wants to tell and to celebrate are the very people who were with him in the roughest, roughest moments. That's why for us, we should never lament in isolation. You know, you might need some time alone at the beginning of difficult times, but we must also let others, especially the church, come alongside you, come around you, love on you, even sing songs of praise to remind you that God is still good amidst your suffering. So that when God responds, you can celebrate and praise together. Now, does that mean that God responds to all of our requests and answers them the exact way that we want them to be answered. We see in verse 24 a really interesting response. He says, as he prays and praises God, he says in verse 24, for he, God, has not despised or abhorred the afflicted of the the affliction of the afflicted. He has not hidden his face from him, but has heard when he cried to him. And then verse 26, the afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him shall praise the Lord. David knew and believed that God would indeed come to rescue David that God cared for the afflicted, that God heard every single cry of anguish David heaped up, that God was visibly present and near to God, and that God would provide what the afflicted needed and that they would be satisfied, so much so that it would lead to their praise and worship of God. Now, we don't know how God helped David or in what way God helped David or when it came or if it came the same way that David thought it would, but David knew that God's character and that God's record shows that he is very much near to those who are afflicted and that he will rescue them in due time in whatever way God deemed best. And the truth was enough for David to write one of the most beautiful verses of praise and worship to God in verse 22 through 31. It's like the praise is just oozing from David's heart. In verse 27, he continues this too. And he says, all the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord. All the families of the nation shall worship before you. He's now saying that, hey, not even just me, not even just Israel, but all the nations, all the families of the world will worship and remember and turn to God because God cares for the afflicted. And then in verse 29, we see, all the prosperous of the earth eat and worship. Before him shall bow all who go down to the dust, even the one who could not keep himself alive. So not even just the nations, but those who are prosperous, the rich, and those who cannot keep themselves alive, the poor, both rich and poor, will even worship God together. And then he finishes in verse 31 to 30, 30, 31, that posterity shall serve him. It shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation. And it kind of skipping down, they shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn, that he has done it. Posterity is another way to talk about future generations of people. So David is saying, even those who are not yet born will come and worship God because he cares for the afflicted. David is saying every person on earth here now and forevermore will worship God together because of who he is, but also what he will do. Because in verse 31, 
it ends and it reminds us, David says, that he has done it. And if we zoom further out of Psalm 22 into the rest of Scripture, and the rest of the Bible, we ask, and we, we ask ourselves, what has God done to bring forth the praise from David and Israel to all the nations and people and all generations, including you and me? It's actually found back at verse 1, where it says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And it's in those words that we hear a thousand years later that a humble carpenter says at the cross, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, would feel abandoned by the Heavenly Father because the Heavenly Father could not look upon him at that moment because on his shoulders were all of our afflictions, all of our sin, all of our deeds cast on him. And it was not just ours, but it was every person, every nation, every family from the beginning of time to the end of time. Jesus also, and if we look at Psalm 22, it's one of the most often quoted prophetic places of what Jesus suffers as the Christ, that Jesus would also be beaten and scorned by mankind, that he would be despised by the very people he came to rescue, that he would be mocked by others, surrounded by others telling him to save himself if he really calls himself the son of God. And we also see that his hands and his feet would be pierced on that cross and that his garments would be divided and his clothing cast for lots. And we see that all throughout Psalm 22. And what should amaze us and humble us is that Jesus Christ, Christ embodied the very afflictions that we see in Psalm 22 so that when we cry in our affliction, Jesus Christ not only drew near to us, but he entered a human body and suffered on behalf of us and even died on behalf of us in our place. That in his death, our penalty of sin that separated us from God our Father and separated us from eternal life with him would now be bridged because of his death and sacrifice on the cross. Jesus Christ would rescue every man and woman who would cry out for help, not just to take away temporary pain that we go throughout this world, but by removing the very sin that led to our eternal death. And not only would Jesus remove the sin and death from us, but when Jesus would raise to life in three days, in power and glory, Jesus would defeat sin and death once and for all. He would accomplish what was impossible for us as humanity. So that no matter where we've come from, what we've done, what, who our parents are, if we're rich or poor, what ethnicity we have, or what blend of ethnicities we have, or whatever generation that we come from, if we trust in Jesus, our Lord and Savior, and follow him, the one who died for the afflicted by becoming afflicted himself, we can proclaim with joy and worship because we are saved and redeemed. And as we just sung, we are free, we have joy and worship because we, like David can say in verse 31, that he has done it that he has defeated the greatest enemy, the greatest death, the greatest thing on this world that humanity could not defeat on their own, that he has done it. But for us, we know 
right? That sin is still out here. It's still in us. It's still causing brokenness in this world. It's evident in our own lives, in our own struggles. It's evident even in the news of shootings, of the pandemic, of job loss, and much more. But for us, if we truly believe that Jesus rose from the dead and that he is in you if you believe in him, our mourning and grieving of all the tragedy around us should be different from the world's. On one hand, we lament with such empathy, with unfiltered anguish, with, ang- with, with anger, with sorrow, because we don't just see humanity's brokenness around us, but in every instance of brokenness, we see our Savior on that cross. We see how much our own brokenness on earth that still terrorizes all of us is the same brokenness that put our Savior, who was completely innocent, and went through intense abandonment and suffering on the cross, a death he did not deserve. So we weep and we mourn and we even get angry at the brokenness in this world unashamedly because we are reminded that our brokenness and evil was so great that it required Jesus to come down and save us. But then on the other hand, we also lament in light of his resurrection that sin and death and all evil will be defeated one day, that Jesus is making all things new, that he is transforming lives, that his spirit is moving forth on this earth, saving lost souls, redeeming marriages, redeeming families, and giving hope to a world that one day all pain and sickness and death will be annihilated. And for those who trust in Jesus, we will live with him in eternity without any affliction around us. The gospel is the ultimate reason why we can lament, and it's also the ultimate reason and reminder to lament. And that's my challenge for you all today. You know, as we go through the, the book of Psalms, we might go through some more laments, um, maybe, maybe not, but as we look throughout Scripture, we'll see that lament is throughout all of Scripture, and it's part of our human experience So we should not be people who run from suffering or suppress the difficulties that we're going through, but we are people who choose to lament in our own hardships and in the tragedies around us because we see it in Scripture and we know that even our Savior went through through his death and resurrection so that we can be people who live in this tension, who live in the tension well and don't just kind of go to one side or the other because it's easier to do that. And so I want to close with just a simple format that you'll see of what a lament prayer looks like. There's many different versions, but this is kind of probably the simplest way to do this. The simple way is that you begin with lament or complaint. And then you also kind of mix that, like David does, with a confession of trust of who God is. And you can do this repeatedly. You can go back and forth, back and forth, lament, complaint, complaint. trusting in who God is, his character, what he has done. And then once that happens, this could be, and reminder, this is not just like a one-time thing. This lament and complaint and confession of trust can be happening for weeks and weeks, okay? And then when your heart is ready and when you are reminded, you can move to a petition or a request for God to help you, to deliver you, to rescue you, to heal, to redeem. And then in that request, 
you, are, you then move to praise and adoration and worship because you are reminded by what God has done in his word through the life and death of Jesus Christ, but also what he has maybe even shown you in, your, in, in the past memories and past of your life. And so at close, I actually just want us to pray like this quickly together. And so if you can, close your eyes. Close your eyes. Um, and I'll just take a minute to walk us through this prayer. Perhaps some of you are actually going through a season of life that requires much lament. Perhaps you need to just say it to God that you have such anger or sorrow before him. And if that's not you, maybe you need to take what is going on in this world that we have, whether it is the continual violence that we see, um, whether it happened, you know, even just thinking about this fourth of what happened to Highland Park and the victims there, or even over the fourth in our city, what happened where there are eight lives taken to gun violence in our city. Maybe it's something that's going on else in this world. Maybe it's a war or something else that you need to lament. I want you to hold that. What are you feeling? What, is, what do you need to say to God? What, what questions do you feel? Do you feel abandoned by God? Do you feel like God is not there? Offer those things to God. And then mix, and then what I want to do is as you hold those thoughts, those questions, those agonies, those anguish, let me just then walk through the rest of this prayer on behalf of, of all of us. God, we come before you because we, many of us believe, many of us know, many of us want to believe that you are a God who is perfect, that you are a God who is holy, that you are a God who saves the lost, the broken, and the afflicted, that you are a God who is faithful and loving and compassionate and merciful, that you are near to us, that you are near to those who are suffering and hurt and in agony. And God, but yet we feel anguish, we feel abandonment, we feel sorrow, we feel the anger of the things that are going on in this world where all things seem like they're wrong and broken and feel hopeless. We bring them before you, God, and God, we do not want to leave that space without properly mourning and grieving, God. But yet, God, we want to trust you. And so, God, we do pray for deliverance. We pray that, God, you would rescue us, that you would heal us, that you would redeem us, that you would restore us, that you would do things greater than what we can do on our own. We ask for your help. Because in the end of the day, God, we want to praise you. We want to praise you because Jesus is alive. Jesus has raised been raised again, and he has defeated all death, all brokenness, all sin in this world, and he is making all things new. And we want not even just our lips to praise you, God, but like David, we want the nations to praise you. We want all generations to praise you from rich and poor, all different backgrounds, all different stories, and even the coming generations, our children and our children's children to praise you, God, because you are worthy of our praise and you are a God who cares for the afflicted. Thank you, Lord, 
for all that you have done and will do in our lives. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.